well, let's uh, hit the word of God. And of course we're going to hit it in a big way. <clears throat> and uh, find 1 Kings and chapter 18. 1 Kings, <coughs> chapter 18. And uh, <coughs> we're wanting verse 19. Now we're going to be going tonight from verse 19 through to verse 40 and we're going to be dealing with little clumps of verses so what we'll do is I'll read through the clump of verses and then we'll look at them and then we'll go through the next one so we'll only be reading a few verses at any one time. Now let's, let's just uh, recap, we'll read from verse 17 uh, when Ahab saw Elijah Ahab said to him is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. <coughs> That's where we ended last time, wasn't it? And then he goes on to say this, Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. <clears throat> now, just notice the authority with which Elijah is moving here. I mean, this is Ahab who's just itching to kill him, but who can't kill him because the Lord doesn't want Elijah killed. And this king, who is reprobate in every sense of the word, uh, you know, he's not used to not getting his own way. And here, uh, Elijah is, is standing a, a, uh, in front of him. Ahab is hating him with every cell in his body. And uh, Elijah, having hurled, you know, uh, Ahab has accused him of being a trouble of Israel. And Elijah thrown that back in his face and said, no, you're the trouble of Israel. And that would have really got Ahab where it hurt, because Ahab knew it was absolutely true. And now Elijah uh, proceeds to give him a command. He tells him to do something. And not only does he just, I mean, here is the king of Israel. Not only does Elijah give this king an order, but the order is that he is to gather his entire nation, all his subjects, at Mount Carmel. And what is so incredible is that Ahab does exactly what Elijah tells him. And the reason for that incredible authority that Elijah is here exerting over Ahab. And remember, Ahab is in no way under God's authority. Ahab is his own man. Well, in actual fact, as we're going to see in a few studies' time, Ahab was Jezebel's man, and that's, that's interesting. But the point was that, that, that Ahab didn't bow the knee to anyone except his wife. And, yet he, and he certainly didn't bow the knee to God. And yet here, Elijah, because Elijah is moving in God's authority, Ahab, like a little puppy dog, does exactly what he says. And the reason that Elijah can move in such authority over a situation is because he is totally under God's authority in his own life. And we must remember this at all times. With any exertion of authority, be it over our circumstances, be it over the powers of darkness, over Satan and demons, we must remember at all time that we only have in our own lives 
the authority that we are under when it comes to the Lord. So it's absolutely no use not living under God's authority and then expecting to be able to have authority in a Christian life. It doesn't work. The authority we have in the Christian life is directly proportionate to the authority or to the amounts that we are under the authority of God. And in practical terms, Elijah is moving in submission to the Lord and his commandments. And therefore, because he is under authority, he can therefore move in authority. Now, just a technical point, uh, he tells Ahab to gather all Israel to me. You know, so here's Elijah, I want your nations come to me, you're the king, but I want them at Mount Carmel, because I want to see them. And uh, he tells him to bring the 450 prophets of Baal, uh, they were the priests of the Baal worship thing, and, uh, and he says also the 400 prophets of the Asherah. Now, just as a technical point, the Asherah was, was a pole, and, uh, you know, it was worshipped, a bit a la totem pole. And uh, it was actually, in the ancient world, it was the female principle in nature. It was kind of like a nature fertility worship thing. And uh, usually accompanied with immorality at the various sacrifices. So, anyway, what, I, you know, Elijah says is, Ahab, I want the nation at Mount Carmel, and I want all your lot, all the false prophets, you make sure that they're all there. And uh, then it says, so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And one can see him reluctantly wagging his tail as he kind of goes off to do it because he has to do what Elijah says. This strong, willful, arrogant king here bowing before Elijah but Elijah was moving under the authority of God. Right, now, let's, uh, let's read verse 21. This would have been a few days later, obviously, and, uh, you know, everyone has got together at Mount Carmel. Now, look at this. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Now, what this tells us is something about the actual situation that Israel was in. And uh, this was mentioned on Sunday when Belinda read um, or spoke about various things that she read in Chronicles. And the situation was that Israel hadn't stopped following the Lord completely. If one was to have the idea that Israel had totally forsaken the Lord and that Judaism, they'd rejected that completely and they'd gone totally into Baal worship, if that was the picture that you had, that would be a wrong one. That isn't what Israel was doing at all. But what Israel had ended up doing was dividing their loyalties between two gods. They were loyal, on the one hand, to the Lord God of Israel, the one true God, but they were also being loyal to Baal and that kind of cultish religion. So what was happening is that you had the people of Israel, God's people, and they were being swayed between the two. Sometimes they were veering over to the Lord, and at other times they were veering over to Baal. 
they had one foot in each camp. And I think a good way to sum this up is to say that they were believers, but they weren't disciples. They were believers, but they weren't disciples. Sometimes it was one thing, Baal. Sometimes it was the other, the Lord. Uh, keep your finger in the place, but just go over to James and let's uh, just read something that uh, sums this up really in the New Testament and uh, in the letter of James. And if you find the first chapter, James chapter 1, and uh, I'm going to read verse 7 and verse 8. Now he's talking about praying and doubting. But listen to what he says. For that person must not suppose that a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, will receive anything from the Lord. And James is there writing to Christians, and he's saying, you're double-minded. You're double-minded. And for that reason, you mustn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. See, double-mindedness. I mean, you know, sometimes they were this, sometimes they were that. Uh, you know, sometimes they were on fire for the Lord. You know, well, oh, this is it. Other times, well, drifting a little bit back into the world. You know, compromising here, compromising there. A little bit of God, God's Word here. A little bit of something else over here. Whatever suited at the time double-mindedness and he says that such a one is unstable in all his ways and instability will always have its roots in double-mindedness now that applies to anything in life but it applies to following the Lord as well what is a stable believer it is someone who is wholeheartedly following the Lord wholeheartedly not with a little bit of their heart still in the world now obviously I'm not talking about any kind of perfection you know perfection sin and the world still grips tightly but the point is instability in a believer is when they blow hot and cold because sometimes it's the Word of God sometimes it's how they feel sometimes it's the truth other times it's, well, you know, okay, but that's a little bit easier if I go that particular way. And all this time, it's swaying between one and the other, double-mindedness. And um, it reminds me of the immortal words of Huey Green, which I heard many times as a youngster. It's make your mind up time, friends. And I say that most sincerely. And that is always the word that goes out to believers who are double-minded. The Lord says, make your mind up, one or the other, all right? Love me or hate me, but don't be lukewarm, kind of veering one way and then the other. And uh, the way Elijah puts it to them here is he says, how long will you go limping with two different opinions. Now, this word limping in the um, Hebrew is porsach, and it's the verb to become lame. And it's the picture of someone who's lame, hobbling down the road, hardly able to walk properly. 
And why? Because he's got two different opinions. To become lame. And double-mindedness, swaying one way then the other, sometimes, but not always, with the word of God, that, to me, is the way to truly define what I believe to be the curse of our time. And it is lame duck Christianity. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? It's lame duck. You'll never get anywhere. Now, there are two things here that I want to bring out. The first thing is that, obviously, they were limping on the one hand between the Lord, he was on that side, and then you had Baal and the Asherah on the other side, and they were kind of swaying, limping between the two. Now, Baal, like the Asherah, was merely an idol. He didn't actually exist. There is no such person or God known as Baal. He doesn't exist. And the Hebrew word for an idol is Eliel, and it means a thing of naught and good for nothing. <clears throat> so really, the, the Hebrew word for idol means nothing, because an idol doesn't actually exist. To worship an idol is to believe in a God who does not exist. And precisely because that God doesn't exist, you are worshipping the wrong God. If you go to 1 Corinthians and chapter 10, <coughs> as you read what Paul says about this, the worship of idols, incidentally the Greek word for idol means a shadow, a shade. It's exactly the same thing, not, not really real. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and in verse 19 and 20, now this is just Paul covering, you know, he's leading up to teaching in regards to the love feast. And uh, he says, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. What Paul is saying there, you can worship an idol if you like, but it's not that idol you're worshipping. You can worship Baal, you can worship Diana, Isis, you name it, and you might believe that, that, that these represent gods who exist. They don't represent gods who exist at all. It's a complete con. And behind every idol, is a demon conning people and the demon is actually receiving worship for itself so behind the idol Baal wasn't a god called Baal because he didn't exist but what did lie behind Baal were demons who were deceiving people and therefore receiving worship for themselves so at the back of idolatry you will find demons and they use idolatry in order to enslave people because they get a grip over their minds and of course ultimately actually get into people and demonize them from the inside. Um, other religions would be in this category. Uh, you can believe in Allah all you want. <laughs> Allah does not exist. Because when you examine what Islam teaches about Allah 
and then look at what the Bible teaches about the one true God. Well, the point is Allah and the one true God, they differ. They can't, by definition, be the same God because they're different. And all this rubbish about all religions lead to the same God. Every religion defines their God in totally different ways. So it's logically impossible for all religions to lead to one God. And so obviously other faiths you put in this category, in, you know, in here, it's idolatry. It's people believing in gods, Allah, you name it, you know, Buddha, well not that Buddha claimed to be a god, but it's people believing in gods who don't actually exist. But behind those so-called gods, behind those so-called faiths and religions, lie demons receiving worship for themselves. And also on the scene today, you've got to put into faith services into this category. You know, when the Archbishop of Canterbury gets together and you've got all the archbishops there and you've got representatives from Islam and Sikhism and you name it, oh my goodness, all that is idolatry and it's demons that lie behind it. So the first point is that because Baal was an idol and because an idol doesn't actually exist, the, the so-called God behind it is a figment of imagination and has no reality at all, but there's a demon there. So idol worshippers are believing in a God who doesn't actually exist. That's the first point. But uh, the second point I want to bring out is that, that God's people, Israel, were caught up in that particular mess. And there is an equivalent way that today Christians get tied up in it as well. But it's slightly different. And you've got to understand this, it is subtle and it is clever. Now, try and get this. Obviously, most Christians believe in the right God. I mean, today in the 20th century and in the West, well, in the East for that matter, uh, Christians don't worship totem poles. Uh, they don't, you know, sort of pay lip service to Allah. I mean, most Christians are clear there is one God and that all other gods are a satanic sham. Now, it would, for Satan to try and get a Christian kind of mixed up with idolatry of another faith would kind of be a a bit of a waste of time. I mean, that attack would be uh, so blatant that it, it would hardly be worthwhile Satan attacking there. Although, having said that, uh, you know, certainly there are some Christians who are falling into this because interfaith services are not just supported by the non-Christian element in Christianity. Like, there are lots of people, be it in the C of E or the Methodist Church or whatever. I mean, I know they're ministers and stuff like that, but they're not actually born again. They don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So, you know, I mean, they're unbelievers. But sadly today, true believers are getting messed up in it. I mean, George Carey, the, uh, the latest Archbishop of Canterbury, he is a born-again Bible-believing man. He is perfectly accepting of interfaith services. He will gather in a service and worship with a Sikh, with a Muslim, you name it. And he believes that they are all praying to the same God. So having said that, Satan is slipping that in at the very edges, but nevertheless that is kind of a bit extreme. But by and large, his attack on Christians nowadays um, isn't to try and to get them to believe in the wrong God. Uh, you know, because, I mean, Christians are simply aware there is one true God, the Lord God of Israel, so that's no problem. Satan, you won't find temptations to believe in the wrong God. 
But what Satan does do, and this is where it is so subtle, is not to try and deceive Christians into believing in the wrong God, but he seeks to deceive Christians into believing in the wrong Jesus. The wrong Jesus. So he doesn't try and get believers uh, believing in a God who doesn't actually exist, but he will succeed in getting Christians believing in a Jesus who doesn't actually exist. Now this, this might seem a bit weird to you, but go to 2 Corinthians and find chapter 11. Sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? Believing in the wrong Jesus, what are you going on about? Well, Paul was, Paul was onto Satan's wiles. He knew all about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, we'll start reading from verse 3. Now listen to this. And uh, he's, he's writing to a Christian church. False teachers had got in, and they'd been trying to turn the church against Paul because they were jealous of Paul, because Paul was a genuine apostle of the Lord and they weren't. And uh, so they've been working away with you know, false teaching in the church. And Paul says this. He says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and preaches another Jesus than the one we preached, and that word another means another of a completely different kind. He says, if one of you, if someone comes and preaches another Jesus than the one we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you submit to it readily enough. Paul wrote that to Christians, and it is astounding. He's talking about ending up believing in the wrong Jesus. Not the wrong God, like believing in an idol, Baal or Diana or Isis or something, but he's warning them against ending up believing in the wrong Jesus. Now, so how can you know if you're believing at any one moment in the right Jesus or a false one who doesn't really exist? Well, here's the test. And the test is so very, very simple. The real Jesus the one Jesus who is God become man, the one Lord Jesus Christ and the only one Lord Jesus Christ who exists, he always leads his people to live in accordance with his word. Whereas, if Satan is able to slip in a false Jesus, then the clear sign of that is that this Jesus who doesn't exist and who is a deception will lead you in a way contrary to God's word. Can you see the point? But isn't it perfect if Satan can get Christians going against the word of God under the guise that it's Jesus who is leading them to go against the word of God? You know, kind of like a Jesus who, well, you know, a Jesus who's soft on sin. Well, isn't that convenient to believe in a Jesus who's soft on sin? 
a Jesus who never corrects you, never deals with you. Well, isn't that convenient? Well, that'd be marvellous if there was a Jesus. But precisely because he loves us so much, he's tough on sin and he will deal with us. So the point is that false teaching always has and always will work best if, uh, if Satan can deceive Christians to believe that it's actually coming from the Lord himself. But having first planted a completely deceptive idea in Christians' mind uh, about what Jesus is actually like. And uh, much of Christianity today is, uh, it seems to me, influenced by a Jesus. You know, we're following Jesus, we're disciples of Jesus. It seems to me that many, many Christians today, and Christianity in general, is actually influenced by a Jesus who, if you test him against the scripture, proves to be a complete illusion. A complete and utter figment of people's imagination. Worse, a demonic deception planted in their minds. I mean, for instance, is Jesus, who is building his church, who is the Lord of his church, who is the master of his church, is Jesus now leading churches to have female eldership? Well, according to vast sections of the Christian community, he is. Well, I ask you, is he? Well, no, of course he is. The real Jesus is not leading churches in that way. But I will tell you one thing, another Jesus is. Is the Jesus, who is the Word of God himself, leading his church today to throw away teachings in the Bible for the sake of unity at any cost? Is the real Jesus leading Christians to do that? Well, no. Of course, the real Jesus isn't leading anyone to do that at all. But many, many Christians are doing it. And they're being led by someone to do it. And they claim that it's Jesus who's leading them to do it. Well, yes, and they're right. But it's the wrong Jesus. It's a demonically deceptive Jesus. It's the very thing that Paul warned the Corinthian church about. Do not let Satan deceive you into believing in the wrong Jesus. Um, is Jesus, who's, uh, well, I mean, in the Bible, uh, the one person who spoke more about eternal damnation in the lake of fire than anybody else is Jesus. This Jesus, the Word of God himself, who wrote the Bible. Now then, is that same J Jesus today revealing to believers that there's going to be no eternal damnation for unbelievers? Well, no, of course he isn't. But there are sections of the Christian church today who are playing around with the idea that there is no eternal punishment for unbelievers. Now, I ask you, is Jesus leading them to believe that? They say he is, and partly they're right. But it's a different Jesus. Um, is the Jesus of the Bible promoting a worldly, lackadaisical discipleship that costs nothing and offends no one? Is the Jesus who said, unless you renounce everything that you have, 
Is that Jesus leading Christians today into this namby-pamby, worldly, compromising faith? Well, no, he's not. But another Jesus is. In actual fact, it's Satan. It's Satan who is deceiving believers about all these things, but he is doing so masquerading as the Lord himself by getting believers to believe in a Jesus who doesn't actually exist. But here's the point. A Jesus whom it suits their sinful natures to actually believe in. Uh, if your finger is still in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, I'm now going to read from verse 12. <clears throat> and Paul says, And what I do, I will continue to do. He says, I'm not making any changes. These, all this false teaching you're into, well, you can have it if you like, but I'm not going along with it. In order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted work, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Now, the reason Satan can disguise himself as one is because he is one. He was one, and he still is one. So it is not strange if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And we're back to the Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God. Satan will appear as an angel of light. Satan will even appear as the Lord Jesus himself. But of course it's not the real Lord Jesus. It's another Lord Jesus, as Paul says. And the point behind it being Satan deceiving believers, keeping them double-minded, limping along, lame, one foot in the kingdom, one foot in the world, but believing that they've both got both feet in the kingdom. Because, of course, they're following a Jesus who basically says, oh, well, I mean, you know, sort of keep up the show, but basically, when it, you know, do what you like. Doesn't matter if you resent people. Doesn't matter if you're selfish. Doesn't matter if you're greedy. Doesn't matter if this, that, and the other. Can you see? And it's a false Jesus. That is the equivalent today in the church of the situation that Israel was in all these hundreds of years ago, worshipping Baal at the same time as they were also trying to worship the Lord. And of course, that is what Elijah's ministry was all about. Reclaiming God's people from the deception that they were under but the deception that they were under because of their double-minded unfaithfulness. And whenever people get into, into deception, it's because something in their sinful nature is kind of like, you know, wanting it to happen. Can you see what I mean? You, you don't want Jesus to be saying quite the thing he's saying to you at the moment. So you kid yourself that he's saying something else. You see what I mean? And you've ended up believing in that moment of time in a Jesus who doesn't exist. The wrong Jesus. A demonically inspired <coughs> Jesus. And uh, in regards to this here, Israel limping 
one minute it's the Lord, the next minute it's Baal again. What a, a relevant and topical picture of the church today. Let's, let's carry on, let's just read verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, we're going to be back to that in a later study, because in actual fact, that, ver that verse there contains in it the seeds of Elijah's later downfall. And oh boy, does, does Elijah have a downfall later on? We'll, we'll be on to that in, in a few weeks. But at uh, verse 23, we get to the context. We get to, to what Elijah proposes to Israel. Now listen to this. He says, let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And you call on the name of your God, oh, sorry, and then he says, and, and then one for me, like, I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for your many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So, what he, he kind of um, sets up here is the contest of the God who answers by fire. And, uh, you know, the idea being, Elijah says, right, we'll get a bull and we'll prepare it, I'll do mine and you do yours, and, uh, and then, you know, don't set fire to your sacrifice and I won't set fire to mine, and uh, let's see whose God sets fire to the sacrifices. And that will show us who the true God really is. And of course, you know, what a, a contest. And so this was, was Elijah's way of showing God's people once and for all that Baal was a complete deception, that Baal was pure false teaching. Now then, I mean, I believe in the few, I mean here Elijah was setting up a miracle you know the coming of the fire was going to represent a miracle which we'll see shortly and I mean obviously we pray that we that will see God's power of miracles more and more in the future but the application of this bit for us isn't I think miracles and signs and wonders um, because the demo today about which is the true God isn't by signs and wonders. I mean, after all, we don't need signs and wonders to know who the one true God is. Uh, we don't need signs and wonders to know who the real Jesus is, do we? Because we've got the word of God in black and white. I mean, they didn't have the word of God in black and white. And I mean, today, largely miracles are, are straight for unbelievers. And of course, what we're talking about here in, in these studies is God reclaiming believers for himself. And of course in the New Testament, whenever you get fire, it's a picture of the holiness of God. And the demo that, that needs to be set up in, in the churches today is, is the demonstration of the transformation of our lives as we more and more conform 
to the Word of God. I mean, in the New Testament, fire is one of the symbols of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Truth. And the Bible, God's Word, represents to us real love. It represents the demand of, of complete self-sacrifice, of costly sharing. That's what being like Jesus is all about. Not one foot in the kingdom and another foot still in the world. I mean, that, that's why the church is, is such a lame duck today, isn't it? Because it's, it's so worldly. But what's needed today amongst believers in the churches is the demonstration of transformed lives of other believers who truly are living according to the Word of God. You know, when the fire of the Holy Spirit really falls in believers' hearts, I mean, that, that is when you really, you know, we really will see, you know, the, the, the church moving back in line with what the Lord actually works. Anyway, uh, once, sorry. Anyway, Elijah has, um, you know, set up, uh, you know, he's, he's got the two bulls and he said, Prophets of Baal, you go first. So, so let's read from verse 26. <clears throat> and they took the bull which was given to them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped about the altar which they had made, because they've been going it so much now, their legs are aching, you know, they've been dancing in a frenzy all morning, and, and their legs are going, and so now they're kind of limping round the altar. Um, the altar. And uh, then verse 27, And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, he's a god, either he is musing, or he has gone aside. That he has gone aside, I'll give you three guesses what that is in the Hebrew. He's on the loo. That's what it is in the Hebrew. Oh, he's in the toilet. That's, that, that's why he can't hear you. Or he is on a journey. Sorry about being indelicate, but that's what the Hebrew is. Um, or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be wakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their customs with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one heeded. Um, what a carry-on. My goodness, what, what a carry-on. What, what, what we have here is masochistic, it is degrading, and it is fanatical. They were inflicting pain on themselves in the belief that that might get Baal answering a little bit faster. Now, whenever you get anything masochistic, degrading or fanatical, then you have a sure sign of something being very wrong indeed, including amongst Christians. I mean, these guys were working themselves up into a frenzy. And uh, it reminds me, sadly, of the way that, and you do get this in some meetings, you get this in lots of meetings, and amongst, sadly, too many Christians, the way that they kind of will work up faith, you know, kind of like whipping up the worship into a frenzy and try and working up faith. Whenever you get that, 
the spiritual equivalent of people lashing themselves and in a frenzy and stuff like that. Whenever you get that, it, it is the, the absolute sign that, that that is not genuine faith at all. Genuine faith does not need whipping up, working up, or getting itself into a frenzy. Genuine faith is not like that. And uh, it's always the sign of something wrong. And I've sadly <coughs> been to meetings where Christians are whipped up by the people at the front into a frenzy. And it's, it's not honouring to the Lord at all. That is not, I mean, being free in worship and dancing and jumping and clapping and shouting, no problem at all. But I'm talking about the frenzy. You know, I mean, these guys were absolutely carried away and it was horrible. Let's make sure that, that nothing of that ever enters into us because it isn't of the Lord. And uh, in, in verse 27, this, you get this, what I call divine sarcasm. <laughs> Elijah is so sarcastic, it's unbelievable. Now, we've got to be careful about this, but there is a time for it, for what I call sanctified sarcasm. Uh, Jesus could be sarcastic. It's when you force someone to the logical conclusion of their argument and demonstrate its stupidity. You know, to the point here that Elijah was saying, you know, well, I mean, your God's fast asleep. That's why he's not answering, isn't it? Because if he was awake, he'd answer. So he must be asleep, mustn't he? And he's really, he, you know, he's really being sarcastic. But he is exposing the stupidity of their beliefs. He's not merely trying to, de you know, he's not trying to demean them. He's not seeking to humiliate them personally. He's not being personal. But what he is doing is mocking this ridiculous belief in idolatry, the, the stupidity of such a deception, and he really does show it up for exactly what it is. And uh, there is a time for that. And, uh, you know, so here are these guys raving on and on and on. They're dancing around the altar. They're, they're, as I say, they're cutting themselves. They're masochistic. They are completely and utterly out of control. As I say, whenever you get anything even remotely resembling that, then it is truly time to step back, because that isn't the way that the Lord likes things done. And in fact, uh, we'll go on to verse 30 now and see the way, in contrast, that the Lord does want things to be done. So, now, uh, in, in verse 30, let's see Elijah's turn. Let's, let's see how he does it. Um... Then Elijah said to all the people, I mean, these guys have raved themselves into a ground, you know, into the ground now. I mean, every time they danced up and down, they were getting shorter because they were wearing great grooves in the mountainside, you know. So, I mean, they're, you know, they're lying on the ground now with their tongues hanging out, panting. You know, they're, they're at the end of themselves. So Elijah lets them frenzy themselves out. And then Elijah said to the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Now, let's firstly, Elijah said to the people, come near to me. Um, how near do you reckon they'd have gone to the prophets of Baal? Well, with that palaver, probably not very near at all. You'd keep a real distance, wouldn't you, from anyone behaving like that. Well, Elijah says, look, come near to me. And it was safe to do so. Because Elijah was someone that you could get near to. He was approachable. Um, 
the prophets of Baal, well, I mean, a sensible person wouldn't go near them. But with Elijah, everyone knew that he is safe to approach. He wasn't, as a person, in any way standoffish or officious. You know, some people, they're not approachable, are they? You know, that you, you kind of, you know, sort of like they've got this, this aura of a kind of a standoffish superiority around them. That is exactly the opposite to what God is like. I mean, Jesus was the most approachable person ever. And more and more as the character of Jesus is revealed in people, they become approachable. Uh, you know, I mean, it doesn't mean necessarily that people who veer on the shy side are suddenly going to become, you know, greatly extrovert and telling jokes all over the place. But you can sense, can't you, when someone is safe. Safe to approach, safe to confide in, safe to be near to. And Elijah was one such person. He was safe to approach. And we need to make sure that we're safe to approach. We're not standoffish, that, you know, or if someone does approach us, you know, and maybe they share something, and, uh, you know, maybe, you know, they're just mentioning a great failure. If you're going to turn around and, you know, tell them immediately what a toe rag that makes them for failing in such a way, well, that's not going to make you a very approachable person, is it? You know, and, and it's important that more and more we become people who are safe for others to approach. And uh, so he got the people close to him, gathering around them, and then he repaired the altar of the Lord. That was the first thing that he did, because there had been an altar of the Lord here at Mount Carmel that had been put up years ago, and it had fallen into ruin, and no one had cared, because people weren't wholeheartedly following the Lord. And so the first thing that Elijah did is he repaired this altar of the Lord. And in so doing, he got the people all around him, close to him, and then he put the Lord first. Because whenever you get an altar of the Lord, what is it you've got? You've got the demand and the right of Almighty God to receive worship and obedience and submission from his creation. That is what an altar is all about. You approach the altar to worship God. And the altar was the place of the sacrifice because we approach God in repentance for our sins. And so here, Elijah, he brings the people near him and in repairing the altar of the Lord, he's underlining what he's all about. He's all about bringing them back into submission to the Lord. And no one had any doubts at all about what Elijah represented. So the first thing he represented was that individually everyone is commanded to repent and to follow the Lord. Every individual, be they unbelievers who aren't converted yet, or be they people who are born again, but worldly and one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world, that it's representing that each such person is duty-bound to live in submission to God according to his word. So the first thing Elijah represented was the position of the individual to the Lord and their position being that of subservience and obedience and worship of Almighty God. Now we read verse 31, see what he did next. Elijah, this was the next thing he did, Elijah took 12 stones 
according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. So then the next thing he does is that while he's building this altar representing the position of the individual towards the Lord, he then, whilst he, he's doing this, gathers 12 stones which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Now what did that represent? It represented that whereas each individual Jew was to be in submission to the Lord as an individual, it also represented that each Jew was part of a corporate nation that together was God's people. And of course what this speaks to us is quite simply that following the Lord has two aspects individual obviously we follow the Lord as individuals but the fact that also he has placed us in the context of a corporate church that we cannot no individual can live the Christian life on their own there is no such thing as lone wolf discipleship it's not possible and so therefore we see the two things individual submission to the Lord that's what Elijah represented but also submission to the Lord corporately in biblical churches and of course today the emphasis is rather on the Christian scene of purely individuals really being sold out to the Lord now that's correct and true and right as far as it goes but the Lord wants more than that. The Lord wants biblical churches. He wants groups of believers living out their discipleship together as groups but in conformity with what his word teaches about being a church. With all the unbiblical and extra-biblical traditions junked. Only the word of God being the final authority and that is the greatest priority today. A retrieval of the churches is needed. By and large, all Christians would accept that. But where it's not accepted is the vitally important point that that retrieval can only be when groups of believers, churches, are truly submitting to the teaching of the Word of God concerning the church. And so we see here in Elijah the individual and the corporate, and that is vitally important. The retrieval today is individual, but it's corporate as well, and we must see the arising of biblical churches all over the place, as opposed to groups of believers who are, as churches, a little bit of what the Bible says and a little bit of what the tradition of the church fathers say. A little bit of what the Bible teaches and a little bit about of what the world teaches, human wisdom. That double-mindedness has got to go and it has got to become the Word of God only. Right, let's read for verse 33. You'll notice here at the end of 32 that he dug trenches, didn't he? And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said... 
fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran round about the altar and filled the trench also with water. Now, as Elijah is proceeding here, I mean, for instance, it says uh, he put the wood in order and he cut the bull in pieces and laid it out. Can you see the, the quiet orderliness with which Elijah is here carrying on um, as contrasted to the chaotic frenzy of the prophets of Baal? Can you see two ways here of approaching your God? Obviously the prophets of Baal were approaching Baal and Elijah was approaching the Lord. Prophets of Baal in a mad frenzy Elijah slowly, carefully, in an orderly manner. And of course, this reminds us of what Paul says uh, in Corinthians, specifically writing in regards to the gifts of the Spirit. He says, let all things be done decently and in order. Now that's the opposite of a mad frenzy. And there are plenty of mad frenzy Christians, and I mean every every now and then we all end up a little bit mad frenzy, don't we? But whenever we do, it's not the way that the Lord wants it to be done. Um, Isaiah 30 verse 15 says this, in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Quietness and confidence, orderliness, bit by bit, one step at a time, you know, rather than the mad frenzy of the prophets of Baal. You see that contrast? There are two ways of living your Christian life. You can burn yourself up like a mad thing, you know, sort of on the charismatic razzle. Or you can pace yourself, get your head down into the Word of God and plod. <laughs> and if you get your head down into the Word of God and plod, you'll reach the goal. If you decide to go on the kind of like the frenzy of the you know, the constant round of meetings and big speakers and let's get up the front so we can be pushed over. Well, uh, you know, I, I mean, you're not going to reach the goal. You're just going to spend your Christian life in a mad world, you know, sort of like the equivalent of Penelope Keith in The Good Life, socially speaking. You know, the constant world of the drama society coming round and the Rotary Club. It's, it's just the spiritual version of that. You know, in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Uh, then, having now completed the sacrifice, he's got it all ready, um, he now has it soaked with water. Remember, what is the contest? Well, it's the God who answers by fire. Whoever's sacrifice gets burnt up first is the winner. You know, their God, game, set and match. You know, pass the trophy. And, uh, you know, the prophets of Baal, they've done their bit and had no joy at all. Um, Elijah is very quietly getting on with his bit, nothing very dramatic about it, just plod, plod, plod. And uh, then he has all the water brought in and his sacrifice is soaked. Now, if you, if you want to set fire to something, you don't soak it with water. And, and so Elijah is really underlying in here, so, you know, look, there's nothing up my sleeve, there's going to be no trickery here, you know, and so soak the sacrifice make it even more impossible. Now, not that there are degrees of impossibility. I mean, you can't have something that's a little bit impossible and then something that's a bit more impossible. 
If something is impossible, it's impossible. There aren't any degrees of it at all. But in effect, Elijah's saying, make it as impossible as you like, because Baal, well, he's, he's still asleep, you make it as impossible for the Lord God of Israel as you like. My God is going to overcome the difficulties. Uh, let me just say at this point, you'll find in some commentaries, um, and, and you'll find that some smart Alex say, Oi, gotcha, <laughs> gotcha, Bible's wrong, isn't it? Pardon? And I say, well, all this water, <laughs> you know, and they're grin, grin, gotcha. <laughs> so what on earth are you going on about? They say, thought there was a drought. <laughs> Where'd all the water come from if there's been a drought for three and a half years then, they say? Well, you know, a little bit of geography. Mount Carmel's just down the road from the sea. Uh, this was seawater. Obviously, it had been brought up, you know, so I just thought I'd chuck that in, because, you know, in case you come across it. And, uh, you know, but, but the point here is that... The, Real faith, in contrast to the frenzy of the prophets of Baal, real faith that is moving in the Lord, that is looking to the Lord, is quiet and it is confident and it is assured. It will do all things decently and in order. Right, let's proceed, verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people might know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And again, what is Elijah going on about here? It's the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And he says, Lord, I want the people to know that the only reason I'm doing this is because you're leading me. And he's got the Lord right up there. And he's just going on and on and on about the Lord. Because winning the people back to the Lord was what Elijah's life a ministry was all about. Remember these people were the Lord's people. They were Israel. They represented believers, but they weren't disciples. And one of the things that Elijah knew, and this burned in his heart, and it burns in the heart of anyone who is sold out to the Lord, it's the realization that one, when you've got a believer who's not a disciple, I mean, not only is that a kind of a hypocrisy, and not only is it something that is bad for them, because you're not truly blessed in the full sense of the word if you're not a disciple, but not only does the man of God know that carnal Christians are missing out, he also knows that they are an insult to God himself. What greater insult to the Lord could there be than people who are born again, who know him, and who follow him a bit. That is the ultimate insult to the Lord. And Elijah couldn't bear that. He knew that the Lord was worthy of better than that. And so his life was about winning these people back to the Lord. And... Um, you know, and to really show them that it wasn't him who was the deceiver, it was the prophets of Baal who had 
deceive them. He wasn't just doing his own thing. He was doing this because the Lord himself was leading him. Right, now then, verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. So the fire of the Lord fell. Just like that. Not like that, but like that. And boom, it's all over. There's no making a drama out of a crisis here, is there? The fire of the Lord fell, it was unmissable, it was indisputable, and the sacrifice was consumed. Now, let me say that so too must it be with us in our lives. Here, <coughs> the sacrifice was a bull, and it was consumed by the fire of the Lord. But for us, what's the sacrifice? Well, we are the sacrifice. Go to Romans chapter 12, when Paul really picks up on this imagery. Romans chapter 12, and I'll read the first two verses. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now obviously the point about a sacrifice in the Old Testament is that you killed it, it was dead. If you were sacrificed, you were dead. But what Paul was talking about here is living sacrifices. And yet, in another way, we are dead, aren't we? Dead to self, dead to sin. We were buried with Jesus in baptism. And what Paul is saying, he says, look, don't you realise that as Christians we should be living dead things? Dead to the world. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. But let, let the word of God transform your mind. And this word here, transformed, is metamorphoon. It's the Greek word from which you get metamorphosis. When a, a you know, sort of like a caterpillar goes in its cocoon and then metamorphoses into something else entirely. And that is what Paul is saying here. He was saying that we must lay our lives down on the altar, that the Lord can really work the death of Jesus into us so that we're living not according to the world and the way of the world and the thinking of the world, but that we're living according to the will of God, that we're living in conformity to his word, that we're actually living via the life of Jesus being lived through us. And that's the picture that Paul is thinking about. And I think that when he talks about in, in these verses, it is no coincidence that in Romans chapter 11, immediately before these verses, and we'll be back to this in a later study, that in Romans chapter 11, he actually talks about Elijah. And then, having talked a bit about Elijah, he then talks about becoming living sacrifices. 
And of course it's the contest on Mount Carmel that is on his mind. And he's saying that we are to be the bull which is consumed by the fire of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, that is what it is all about. Not limping between the Lord and the world. Not limping between two different opinions, but wholeheartedly following the, the Lord. And in two ways, in the context of our own individual lives and also in the context of corporately being part of the part of a biblical church. Right, okay, verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And here the people return to the Lord. And they cry out, The Lord is God. And of course what they're saying, not Baal. The Lord is God. We were deceived about Baal. The Lord is God. And notice, they made no mention of Elijah at all. They simply kept saying, the Lord is good, uh, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. They didn't mention Elijah once. And that is a mark of the good servant. Even through such a dramatic demonstration, Elijah had managed not to draw attention to himself, but only to the Lord. The sad thing is today that so many of God's people, when they see demonstrations of God's power through other believers, they cry, the Lord is God, the Lord is God, and Him, He's brilliant, and I want all His tapes. You see what I mean? And there's the latching on to the servant. That's a big mistake. And Elijah managed to not draw attention to himself but only to the Lord. Elijah didn't become the big hero. He didn't want to become the big hero. He managed to hide himself. Do you remember? Hide yourself. Brooke Cherith. Well, here he was standing in front of an entire nation, but he had learned to hide himself. And they only saw the Lord. Now, that's God's grace in a man's, man's life. That's the humility that only the Holy Spirit can produce. And yet we saw in the first study, didn't we, here the people are crying out, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. What does Elijah's name mean? It means the Lord is God. And this is ironic. In the Hebrew, they're actually crying out Elijah. And, and that is absolutely brilliant. Because the point is, Elijah, his life, was virtually inseparable from the Lord in his life. Almost as if they were one and the same. Of course they weren't. But remember Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Now the point is, it's not that there's Jesus, the vine over there, and here's us, the branches over here. The branches are the vine. You see, we are one with Jesus. Now obviously he's him and we're us. It's not that you kind of, you know, mix into a, a homogenous spiritual mass that you can't distinguish. I mean Jesus is Jesus and we're us. But we are one with him. And Elijah was so one with God that to look at him was to see God himself. To look at Elijah living was to see the Lord living himself. And Elijah had shown the Lord 
in all his truth and beauty to the nation of Israel through his own life. And all I can say is more and more that is what I want to be true for me. And that, you know, I hope you want it to be true for you. Can you imagine that people look at us and they see Jesus living? They don't see us at all. They see Jesus living through us. That is what being a disciple is all about. That's what I want more and more. Okay, verse 40, winding it up here. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and killed them there. Now here we have capital punishment. Elijah is the executioner and he here executes 450 people. The 400 prophets of Asherah weren't put to death. But the 450 prophets of Baal are now put to death with the sword by Elijah. Now then, does that seem a bit harsh? I mean, here's a bloodbath, and this is a bloodbath. Does it seem a bit harsh? Well, again, notice that it's only the prophets of Baal who are put to death, not the prophets of the Asherah. And there's a reason for that. You've got to just now understand something about the nature of Baal worship and to understand something as well about the nature of anyone who was a prophet of Baal. <clears throat> Part of Baal worship involved the sacrifice of babies. These prophets of Baal had between them murdered countless infants in their ceremonies. They had committed infanticide. They were themselves murderers and of little children at that. And of course the law demands that murderers, premeditated murderers, be put to death. And Elijah now does what Ahab, had he been following the Lord, would have ensured happened many years before. Because under the law, people such as the prophets of Baal were to be put to death. But Ahab hadn't done it, and he was the king. It was his duty to do it. Well, Ahab wasn't carrying out his duty, so Elijah did it instead. And Elijah put them to death. He actually ran them through with the sword. He was the executioner, but notice that he made the people help them. He told the people to seize them, and the people brought them to Elijah so Elijah could kill them. And that is tremendously important, that the people took part in it. And for us, as the people, what it means is that anything and everything of satanic deception or false teaching that we find in our own lives, and we will, Obviously, the more we grow in the Word of God, the more the deceptions of our own minds and the demonic illusions are exposed for what they are. And it means that any time we find a little stronghold of Satan and the world in our minds or in our hearts, then that stronghold must be dealt with and put to death as surely as the prophets of Baal were here. 
At one point, Paul says, I am dead to the world, and the world is dead to me. And of course, he's talking not about the world in the sense of the trees and people and having a car. I mean, he's not talking about, you know, living at the top of the pole, you know, a pole and trying to escape from the world. He's talking about the attitude of the world, the sin of the world, the mentality of, of the world without Jesus. And Paul says, I'm dead to that, and that is dead to me. And we must ensure that, that, that we're cooperating with the Lord in his work in our lives of killing off the world inside of us. I think I've said it before, when, Egypt, when Israel was brought out of Egypt for 40 years, they went through the wilderness on their way to the Promised Land. And, of course, Egypt represented the world. Uh, you know, Pharaoh, who was over them, represented Satan, the god of this world. And there were taskmasters who beat them mercifully, mercilessly, and made them do their will. And, of course, that was a picture of sin. And when they came over um, the Red Sea, that was the picture of Israel being born again as a nation. That's when you get converted. You're brought out of the world. But, of course, before you get to Canaan, the land of promise, the fullness of life in Christ, you go through the wilderness. Now, what did the wilderness represent? Well, the fact was that it only took God a few days to get Israel out of Egypt. But it took him 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. And in actual fact, he never did. Because apart from, I think it was three people, everyone else of the Israeli nation who came out from Egypt, they all died in the wilderness. And it was a completely different generation of Jews who eventually got into Canaan. Now, what's the picture? Well, the picture is this. It took God a microsecond to get you and me out of the world. The moment we were born again, we were, the Bible says, translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvellous light. It took God a flash to get us out of the world. But the great problem is, the world is still in us, isn't it? And God, having got us out of the world, then has to sanctify us, which is another way of saying he's got to get the world out of us. But like Israel, he does it by us dying in the wilderness. He gets the world out of us by us dying to it. And can you see the way that the prophets of Baal, they were put to death without mercy, and that in our own lives, as the Lord reveals areas of the world in us, then those areas too must, by his grace, with his help, be put to death. And for us to really allow him to deal with us in whatever way is necessary in order for that to progressively be happening. And uh, notice that he takes them down and he executes them at Brook Kishon. Now this, this Brook Kishon, uh, Kishon in Hebrew means binding. And of course in the New Testament it talks about the binding of Satan, doesn't it? You know, you bind the strong man and then you plunder his goods. Uh, you know, this is possibly a little bit tenuous, but I raise it anyway. A picture of the binding of Satan in our lives. Because the world is in us, but Satan is the god of this world. And any devices of the enemy that we find in our own lives, any devices at all must be put to death without hesitation. They must be bound. 
they must be dealt with. They must be put before the Lord for him to do with as he pleases. And today, the church in this country, just like Israel then, the church in this country needs to be reclaimed for the Lord. The, the, the strongholds of Satan within the church in this country needs to be bound and needs to be dealt with. We looked at that a bit when we noticed the significance that uh, he was taken to Sidon, that, Jeze that, that, that um, Elijah was led into Zidon, um, where Jezebel came from. We saw it a picture of going straight to the heart of what Satan was doing amongst God's people. We saw a bit of it then, but next time we're going to move on to see more of it. And of course this, this binding of the enemy and this reclaiming God's people for himself is primarily a challenge for prayer. And so next time we're going to move on and it's that aspect of things we're going to look at. We're going to see prayer and we're going to learn an awful lot about it by looking <coughs> at Elijah himself praying. So uh, we will turn our attention to that next time.